0: <laughs> Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you, people, as you know, I'm leaving LA for good at the end of this month, and people say why, and, and here's just one of the many reasons why. Joanne wanted to go to see uh, LACMA today, because after 3 o'clock on a Friday, it's free, so she was figured she'd go to the Peterson Museum first, then LACMA. Now, it's 11 miles from our place, it will take her. It took her forty minutes to get there, and then once she got there, LACMA, unlike any other art museums as I know of, in the country, has like three hundred parking spots, and there's no parking lots around it. Like you go to most cities, you can find parking spots. So that's one of the other reasons why, because this city, they don't think they don't they don't plan. And uh, I'm telling you, it's uh, it's going to be it's going to be good. To actually, go find parking somewhere. And as I say in L.A., everywhere else in the country is pretty much when it's not rush hour, it's a mile a minute. Well, in, in to drive in L.A., it's always rush hour, and it's like two and a half minutes a mile if you're lucky. Anyway, we have a great show today. We have a. I got to tell you, people. You know, if you have been in a job for more than thirty years, I say kudos to you. If you are a performer in the entertainment world and you've been doing your, applying your craft for over 30 years, I say double kudos to you. If you're a stand-up comic and plying your craft for over that long, I say triple kudos to you because the business is always changing and you got to roll with the punches. And my act is, is a pretty much a, a comedy, you know, a great comic who's been doing it for a long time and been very successful. My comic, my um, guest is Jeff Janna. How are you doing, Jeff? Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me
1: on, man. Appreciate the invite.
0: Hey, no problem. Now, now, I saw, like, when Don Rickles had passed, I saw a picture you posted. You had done, I believe, an episode of Hunter with Don. Uh, did you live... Had you lived in L.A. for a while?
1: I uh, Yeah. My wife and I lived out in Los Angeles for a long time. For over 20 years we lived out there. And uh, like you, I uh, I got tired of, uh, you know, the traffic and the crowds and, and things. And I kind of woke up a few years back, and uh, I realized they weren't looking for any guys who are over 50 to, to have sitcoms, and uh, <laughs> so instead of supporting my L.A. house habit, uh, my wife and I moved back to the Midwest, uh, I actually was a kid when I grew up, I grew up in Kentucky and in Ohio. We moved back here. We lived kind of out in the country, outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. When I moved back, I uh, was in the car one day with my dad in this little town where we live called Middletown, Ohio. It's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And we pull up to a traffic light, and there's it's a, two lanes, and there's a car in each lane and one other car. And I pull up, and I make the fourth car at the light, and my dad just looks at it and goes, ugh. Oh. This traffic, <laughs> uh, and I just start laughing. I just start laughing. You know, it's just like, trust me, Dad. This is good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about so, your career, but I, I want you to tell the Rickles story because you, because you know, my listeners, everyone loved Don Rickles, and it's yeah, funny. I, I'll, I, I'll
1: tell, I'll tell a follow-up too on the Rickles story when, when uh, after I do that. Um, I, I was very fortunate. I got caught, cast. They apparently had run out of real actors. And I got a a part on the show Hunter. Um, I'm, I'm thinking this was 1991. Uh, and a great little part on the show. I got to do a couple scenes with Don Rickles. It was fantastic. And, uh, we're on the set and I'm, I'm a fan. You know, I've always been a Rickles fan and I approach him and say, you know, hey, Mr. Rickles, you know, I just want to say it's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, I'm a fan and the, says What are you doing? I gave him my little line about, uh, well, I'm, I'm they apparently ran out of a real actors because I'm not an actor, I'm a stand up comics. He goes, Stand up comic, where, where do you work? And I was instantly a brother, you know, it was you know how it is among comics, right? Just instantly a brother. And uh, he tells one of the production's assistants to get me a chair, and I sit down next to him, and we and we just chat and you know after 15 minutes it's like we've known each other for 20 years and uh, so we do the shooting and at the end of the day he says to me you know he says uh, if you're ever somewhere and you see we're working man give me a call come and see the show and you know how how people say that to you right? (laughs) Yeah (laughs) So about two months later I'm up in Las Vegas and I'm working at The Riv (laughs) it was still the improv at The Riviera comedy club back then and Steve Sharipa, who later went on to great things on The Sopranos and in movies, was the, the head of the club there. He ran the club there. And I'm fretting, you know, should I call Don Rickles? He's at the Nugget. I'd love to go see Don's show. And Sharipa just looks at me and goes, what do you think? You're going to call the Nugget? He's going to pick up the phone? You call, you leave a message. If he wants to see you or talk to you, he'll call you back. So I call and I leave a message, and she sure goes, heck, you know, a little bit later he calls me back and hit you hockey puck and how are you? And I guess you want something. <laughs> and I said I'd love to come down and see the show, Don, and bring the other guys here with me. And he goes, Oh, not just you, three guys. So uh, he says there'll be tickets for you. We'll call for the for the late show, so we get down. We'd finish. We'd finished about ten thirty, and we rushed downtown. To make Don's late show, we go in. We go to the will call window, you know, and the lady looks at me and says, "Oh, you're Mr. Ruckle's guest." She calls the major D over there. The major D takes us in, seats us beautiful booth, center back wall. I try to tip the major D money. He goes, "I take that money from you. Don will break my arm." <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, it was the, the first and only time I've ever had anybody in Las Vegas refuse a tip. Right. <laughs> uh, so we sit down, we watch the show. It's hysterical. It's fantastic. Uh, and we're sitting there afterwards, and Maida a D comes over and goes, just relax here for a few minutes, guys. When Don's ready, I'll take you backstage. Great. And I said, "Well, you're here, can I get the check? Because we had, you know, a few drinks and some food. And he goes, you're Don's guest. There's no check for you. Wow!
0: Yeah, wow! That's awesome.
1: So, a few minutes, we go backstage. You know, oh, thank you, Don. Really appreciate it. And we sit in the dressing room. And if the Vegas dressing rooms aren't like dressing rooms that people might see on movies, you know, like they're not like trailers. They're like mini apartments. They're gorgeous. You know, there's a a sitting room and a bedroom and a shower and a kitchen. And so we're sitting in the in the little living room there and just chatting away and all of a sudden he just uh, we're there 15 minutes so all of a sudden he just jumps up and goes oh my god do you know what time it is and i now can i can I use a profanity yeah, 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 sure, no no, yeah, okay okay i just wanted to make sure before i did i didn't want, want you to have to edit something
0: well, no no it's fine it's fine
1: but he, he he jumps up and goes do you know what time it is and I go, no, Don. What time is it? He goes. It's time for you guys to get the fuck out of here. I want to go to bed. <laughs> so uh, he was just a prince to me, and I'm, you know, I uh, I'm a nobody, you know. So uh, at the time I was living, my wife and I were living up in what was known as Beverly Hills adjacent, right. which is West LA near the Beverly Center, right? <laughs> uh, and uh, I would jog up in Beverly Hills because it was quiet and the streets were wide. There wasn't a lot of traffic. And I would see Don would go out and walk every day. And he would kind of power walk for his exercise. And I'd see him every once in a while. Hey, how are you, Mr. Rickles? You know, hey, how you doing, kid? And so one day I come up behind him while I was jogging. I say, hey, Mr. Rickles, how you doing? He goes, listen, we see each other all the time. It's Don, Don, right? And I say, okay, Don, great. So a few days go by, I'm out jogging again. I see him out walking. Hey, Donnie he goes, who the fuck are you calling me Don? What are we, like best friends? <laughs> it's just It's just the way he was, you know, funny and kind beyond belief. And uh, I was very lucky to have made his acquaintance and gotten to see him work and that and to work with him, so...
0: Now, now you said you know you grew up in the Midwest. What made you want to get into comedy? And were you attracted to comedy as a kid? I mean, I talked to a lot of comics, and I did comedy. A lot of us, and the people have a misconception that a lot of comics were class clowns. And a lot of us weren't. I think we were more quiet, made people laugh, and we got our writing skills, I think, when we were younger. What was your path to getting into the stand-up? Well, you know, first
1: of all, my, my, my dad uh, was a huge... Lover of comedy, and and I differentiate between an appreciation of humor, which I believe is what most people call a sense of humor. And I and I say comedians have a sense of humor. We can look at a dog get run over by a car, something that's horrible, and go, man, that's a bit right. <laughs> you know, that's a sense of humor. You see something that's not funny, and you think I can make that funny. You know, there's something in that that that's a shared human experience that I can work with. Whereas an appreciation of humor is when when somebody hears something that's crafted well and laughs at it and goes, man, that's funny. Yeah, that's an appreciation of humor, not a sense of humor. Anyway, that's just my personal thing. But my dad had a tremendous appreciation of humor. Loved comics. And I remember as a kid in Kentucky sitting on the sofa with my dad. My dad was a huge fan of Jackie Gleason. And we would watch Ed Sullivan and Carson and all the shows. And I can remember one night very clearly watching the Ed Sullivan show, and there's a comic on my dad laughing. And I knew what my dad did for a living. And I said to my dad, I said, Dad, what, what's that guy do for a living? And he goes, son, that's what he does. He goes on TV, and he tells jokes, and they give him money. And I remember as a young boy thinking, wow, you can get paid for telling jokes jokes and as a young kid from the middle of nowhere in kentucky it just was a concept that was so foreign to me you know the things they presented on career day were you know priest cop tobacco farmer you know it wasn't oh oh yes and there's this other career path you might consider stand-up comedy you know the nuns weren't pushing that one real hard back in ashland kentucky So, uh, I got interested in it then, but, you know, I uh, took the normal route. I went to college. I got a degree in education. I was a math and science teacher for seven years, and I was living in the late 70s. I was living down in Houston, Texas, and I wasn't happy with the direction (laughs) I was going in, and one day I... I saw an ad in the Houston Chronicle about taking an improv class at a place called the comedy workshop in Houston, Texas. And I went down and I started taking some improv classes. Uh, the woman, uh, and I'll shout out to her, Kathy Drago, who started my career, taught that improv class. And she said to me, she said, man, you, you have some talent. And, uh, Shortly after I started doing improv, the guy who owned the comedy workshop named Paul Menzel, he opened the famous Comics Annex, which was a little tiny room, maybe 70 seats, 80 seats. And uh, he said to me, he says, to me and a couple other guys, Fred Greenley, who went on to be a writer on, uh, um, uh, I can't think of the show, sorry, it just it went out He's of smart. my head. I think he wrote on Will and Grace. I, I was uh, getting it confused with Grace Under Fire. Um, but he wrote on Will and Grace, and he's an executive producer now of, of some reality stuff. Me and Fred Greenlee and a couple other guys were doing improv, and Paul says, you guys, we need comics for the new Clover opening. Write some stand-up material. And I had no clue what to do. But... um I went on stage that first night I went on it, and it was awful. I was horrible. But as you know, it's some kind of bizarre sickness that we all have, that you crave the acceptance of a room full of total strangers. And uh, I don't know what made me go back for another dose of embarrassment and humiliation, but I did. And now, almost 40 years later... Still here. I don't know how it happened.
0: Now you sit there, you do the first few times, and, and back then there wasn't a lot of comedy clubs, I'm assuming, you know. Um, no. so you're sitting there, so how are you getting time how are you developing your act? I mean, out here in LA, every damn coffee shop has it. Of course, you know I always say you really can't develop your act when you're in front of seven comics who don't give a crap. But how how were you developing your act back then? And then when did you know you could start getting a well, this work. is the
1: amazing thing. In in Houston at the time, I don't mean to cut you off, but in Houston at the time when the Annex opened, comedy was, it was this new thing. It was hot. Uh, this was 78. Um, and the Annex, unlike a regular club, was basically a seven-night-a-week, and it was packed every night, pretty much. And, you know, the guys who were starting out there were, you know, Sam Kennison and Carl LeBeau and Fred Greenlee and Bill Silva, Mike Vance, Jack Mayberry, who to this day, I believe Jack Mayberry, one of the best joke writers who's alive. I don't know if you know Jack or not, but.
0: Yeah, I I, I work um, in Valencia.
1: Yeah, tremendous joke writer. And um, uh, just this uh, Bill Hicks, Dwight Slade, this whole I mean it was an amazing group of folks who were just showed up and started working out of there and um would you know seven nights a week you're going up and doing your 5 and 7 minutes and you know after the first week you know you were sick of doing the same <laughs> 5 minutes
0: <laughs>
1: and so it really motivated you to write something else and And it was, it was, I I say I I grew up in the luckiest and the best time to be a developing stand-up comedian because we got to work almost every night of the week. And afterwards, it was a seminar. I mean, you know, Sam and Carl, and and we'd go down to the House of Pies, which we called the House of Guys in the Montrose District, or we'd go to Beer and or we'd go someplace and just hang out and talk about our acts and you know what? What are you doing? And that joke is stupid. And and I got schooled by some of the best. Um, you know, by Carl and Sam and Fred and Bill Sylvan, Mike Vance, and some of those guys. Riley Barber, Dan Barton. There were just an, an amazing number of great, talented guys hanging out there, who were my master class. They were my introduction to comedy and they I learned from them how to you know you know the old sayings about comedy you know when I started out I was a huge Carlin fan and I would basically write jokes in the voice of George Carlin original jokes but still jokes you know I can remember one of my old jokes was like very Carlin-esque it was like hey why do they call it a can of soda it can't do anything. They should call it a can't. <laughs> and, and yeah, I know. That bad, and I'm still in the game. <laughs> and, uh, Isn't but, it? Uh, you know, I, 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 I was so influenced by Carlin in that. And and there's the old saying, you know, if there's, if, if there's two simple things to be a great stand-up comedian. <sighs> Write an act that is really tight and well-rehearsed and focused but make it seem like it's just coming off the top of your head and learn to be yourself on stage and if you can master those two things in less than 10 years you're a genius um so it, the the education I got doing you know 6 7 nights a week at the uh, at the annex in Houston it was unbelievable you know i mean i i got more stage time in that first year and a half than Most guys who are starting now can get in five years, you know. So you got good
0: quick or else you gave up. So so you were getting on stage all the time. You're developing your act. When did you decide to start branching out and going on the road? And was there a lot of road work back then? And in Texas or did you have to go a lot out of state? Well, here's
1: happened. I, I worked out of the annex for a little bit short of two years. And I was still teaching school by day. I still had a day gig, a good day gig with health insurance and all those things. And uh, I got an offer for another really super teaching job in uh, Detroit, outside of Detroit, Michigan, in Bluefield Hills, Michigan, at a very posh private prep school. And I took that job. And I moved up there and I worked that job for one year. And that was 1980. And I moved there and immediately found. Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle in Detroit and started hanging out at Mark's and doing open mics there. And Mark actually started paying me. That's what the first pay gig I ever had was in Detroit in, you know, 1980. Uh, I started getting opening spots and some middle spots working for Mark in front of guys who now are household names, Gary Shem and Jay Leno, you know, everybody who's who you've ever heard of, you know, that's a stand-up comic and famous, worked for Mark back in the 80s. And, you know, uh, Robert Wall. I, You know, I could go down the list of everybody you've, who's, you know, between the ages of 50 and 70 who's a great stand-up comic, worked for Mark during those couple years I was there working for him. And then about 19, well, one year I worked, so in 81, in the summer of 81 going into the school year of 81, 82, I went to the headmaster of the school and said, you know, I, I, I think I would really hate myself if at some point I didn't try this for a living. And I said, I want to take a year's leave of absence, do this for a year and then come back and maybe write a book about it or something. And he went, yeah, okay. I'll hire somebody on a one year contract. You go do your thing. And, uh, in a year, if you want to come back, let me know in April. So I never went back. So and that's what is that thirty-seven years since I've had a had a quote-unquote real job. So uh, it's worked out okay.
0: Now, now when now when you started doing it, now did you st- where did you start branching off to him, going on the road to him? When did you? How long did it take yeah, you to become well, a headliner?
1: Uh, wow. When the, well, I'm trying to think, when the, not long. I mean, it, it was you know it was. The explosion of comedy rooms, and that's why I say I, I, I started at the, the luckiest possible time to start, because the explosion of comedy rooms in the early 80s made it so, you know, you, you didn't really have to be a headliner to headline, if you know what I'm saying. I, I mean, I'm not sure that when I started headlining, I was a really a quality headliner, but I would say I started headlining probably maybe a year, a year and a half after that. So in, you know, 83, 84, probably, I started headlining. I'm, and I'm sure my first headline gig was probably a one-nighter somewhere. I don't even really remember my first headline, quote-unquote, gig. So... But
0: so, so you're working... Every- I know I was... No, go
1: ahead. Yeah, like, here, the thing was, there was the Cleveland Comedy Club which is now about where third base is in the uh, progressive field there. Um, and that was, uh, that's a great story. I, I would finish school on Monday, was open mic night at the uh, Cleveland Comedy Club. A guy named Dino Vince was the guy who ran it. And I would drive from Detroit down to Cleveland after school about a three-hour drive, get there, get on the list to do open mic, do open mic, get done, head around, you know, 10, 30, 11, jump back in the car, drive back to Detroit, get to bed, get up and teach the next morning, you know. And you got, you know, six, seven minutes, you know, so I'm driving six hours to, to, on a work night to do six minutes, you know. That's how much I wanted to do it. And, uh, God, I was doing that every Monday, you know, just going down there and begging, Dino, give me a weekend spot. Give me a pay spot. So uh, it just never happened. And At one point, finally, I just quit going. After I'd been, I'd done it, you know, 20 times, maybe driven down there on a Monday night. So I quit my job. I'm out trying to get road gigs. I get a road gig at a place called Hilarities in Akron, Ohio. So I take this middle, it was a middle spot, and I get a call from Dino, and I says, uh, what are you doing working there? What are you doing? He says, you're one of my guys. That's competition. I said, Dino, Canton, the guy or Akron, is 45 miles from the club <laughs> in Cleveland. He goes, I don't care. I don't care. That's interfering with my thing. You work there. You're never going to work for me. Which part? I said, Dino. Let me ask you a question. And all the time I've known you, how many paid spots have you ever given me? He goes, uh, I don't know. How many? I said, the answer is zero. So let me understand your threat, Dean. If I work this gig in hilarities, you're not. I, I will get less than zero paid spots from you. And at that point, I believe he hung up on me.
0: Now, you're working, you're becoming a headliner. When do you start, were you hitting all the imp, like the improv TV shows and stuff like that? Did you start getting all those spots?
1: Yeah, well, here's the deal. I, I moved after a couple of years in Detroit uh, with no, uh, you know, just doing like middles and occasional headlines and things like that. I moved to Chicago because, actually, let, let me tell you something else, why Detroit was actually a perfect spot for me at the time. And not a lot of people are aware of this. In the early 80s in Detroit... The auto industry was booming, and there was a lot of commercial and industrial film work there. And I was fortunate. I got a lot of roles in industrial films and in commercials for the car companies. And I learned a little bit about acting and a little bit about auditioning in that time. And uh, I also was fortunate enough to get my union card, SAG and AFTRA, In the process, which as you know in Los Angeles, incredibly difficult to do. So, after a few years of doing uh, some road work as a comic, industrial films, commercials in Detroit, having both my union cards, I moved to Chicago because there's more stuff going on there. And at the time I moved to Chicago in 83, it's just there's a, a, a crazy amount of clubs in Chicago, there's an improv. There's Three Zanies. There's the Funny Farm. There's Sinisi's Winery. There's probably eight or nine full-time gigs in and around Chicago, club gigs. Then there's a plethora of other work around. And, you know, if you planned your, your schedule right, you could, you know, stay in town for, you know, 12, 14, 15 weeks at a time and be working all the time. And then... You know, also I'm auditioning and picking up some, you know uh like extra work on movies and you know, the occasional industrial film role and uh a commercial. I did a commercial for the Chicago Trib and I did a commercial for a car dealership in Chicago and some things like that. So uh, Chicago was just a unbelievable place in the early eighties just to to get work, to get all that kind of work. So um I moved to Chicago. I'm living and working out of Chicago, having a, you know, a, a fantastic time in Chicago. And then uh, I get auditioned in Chicago for the original Star Search show. I get Star Search. I get picked Claudia McMahon, who Ed McMahon's daughter, was the talent coordinator. She picked me to do Star Search, which was my first national TV show. I'd done some local things in Chicago. My first big national TV show. So I decide now's the time to make the move to Los Angeles. I'm hot stuff. I'm going to go out and be a big, big shot because I'm going to be on star search. <laughs> so I close down my apartment. I ship all my stuff out west. I get in the car. I've got a gig at the Comedy Corner, Jeff Valdez's Comedy Corner in Denver on the way, in Colorado Springs on the way. I stopped. It was also the first time I ever went to Las Vegas. I stopped at Las Vegas for a night on the way out there and just, you know, was blown away by Las Vegas. Drive into Los Angeles. I had a friend who was in the movie business who was going to out of the country for a few months to work on location on the film. He offered me his house up in Las Vegas. If I house sit for him, it just worked out. So I move into the house. I'm in Las Vegas. The first night I'm in Los Angeles, I get dressed up. I roll down to the improv. I find Howard Allen, who was the house MC at the time. I don't know if you ever knew Howard, or, but he was quite a character. We actually later became kind of buddies because we both loved golf a lot. I come, I walk in, just bold as brass. I walk in the front door. And I go, uh, "Hey, my name's Jeff Chen. I'm going to be on Star Search next week. When can I go up?" <laughs> <laughs> he looks at me, and uh, back in the day, the improv had like a kind of a blacklight board that they wrote the names on who was going to be there tonight. So he points up the board and it's like Leno, Shandling, Letterman, you know, uh, Seinfeld, Rick Overton, Rich Scheidner, that's the list, right? He looks at me and goes, hey you, who do you want me to throw off the list so Mr. fucking Star Search can go up? <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> I kind of storm out and I go, you know what? I heard these improv guys were assholes. I knew that. I'm going to go to the comedy store. I'll get some respect at the comedy store because that's where real comics hang out. Because I knew that's where Kennison hung out, right? So I go up to the comedy store. I don't even get in the door. (laughs) So now I am eating some big time humble pie. (laughs) Uh, and I happened to run into somebody out front of the comedy store who I knew at the time. Now I'm, I'm very humble. I'm, I'm out here to start searching I can't even find to get up and do my set so I can rehearse. And he says to me, he says, man, there's a club over on the west side called Igby's. I'm heading over there. Why don't you go there with me? I'll see if you can get you on for a few minutes. So I go. And of course, by the time I get to Igby's, I'm a little more humble. And I uh, beg Jan Smith who is one of the sweetest and most human people you'll ever meet. I begged Jan Smith. I said, please I gotta work out myself I'm gonna be in Star Search, you know, I gotta I gotta be And he goes, Well, I, you can go out for five minutes. But if I give you the light, you get off right away. So I I think we were taking Star Search on like Monday or Tuesday and this was Friday. So I go up, I get five minutes it goes pretty well. I come off and uh, Jan is just sweet. He goes, you did pretty good. You can come back tomorrow on Sunday and work on your set. That'd be fine. And uh, he was a prince to me and we are still friends to this day. And uh, so that was my introduction to L.A. Why not?
0: <laughs> but, who, who did you go against? Go in, who do you go against in Star Search? Steve McGrew told me he beat Louis C. K. in Star Search. Who who did you go right. against well, and how far did you go?
1: I, I I am proud to say this. I lost to a woman named Joanne Deering, who was a a, a really sweet woman, and uh, I I don't know I don't think she's doing comedy anymore. I don't know whatever happened to her. Um, but I lost to her. She sang a song, like a little character song, and I ate it. <laughs> I came out and ate it. Because I, I had never done comedy on TV. I was a club guy. And as you know, there's a difference. And uh, I came out and, uh, you know, I wasn't ready for TV. I really wasn't. And I like to say that I got the lowest score of any comic <laughs> who ever appeared on Sir Search. And I think there was only it was t- two stars is what I got. And I think it was probably only two stars because I think they told the judges, don't give lower than two. <laughs> and uh, and Joanne got four from everybody. So that was my, my one shot on star search there. But then, you know, moving into the later 80s and 90s, I did, I mean, I've done as a stand-up comic, I think I counted up all the ones I could remember at one point a few years back. And I think it's, 45 or 50 appearances as a stand-up comic on various brick wall shows, you know. Evening at the Improv, Improv the Night, Comedy on the Road, Showtime Comedy Club Network, MPV, Half Hour, you know, uh, Comedy on the Road, um, Caroline's Comedy Hour. You know, I, I did all of those shows multiple times. And um, in fact, my last TV appearance was two years ago. I did... Byron Allen's comic, Unleashed, I went out west and did that, which was really sweet of Byron to have me on. And I didn't feel too old. I was probably, the other comics on the show, except for Byron and the audience, I was probably 30 years older than everybody there. (laughs) But it was great. And I had one great line on the show that I'd written just recently. I was on with Mike Epps. And I said, uh, you know, my mother and father argued all the time. In fact, they argued on the day my mother died. And Mike kept, just kind of looks at me and goes, really? I go, well, yeah, that's kind of what led to the shooting. And uh, <laughs> he f- literally fell out of his chair. You know, he just wasn't ready for that out of my mouth, you
0: know. So <laughs> Now, uh, I got to ask you. Now, you said when you were on Hunter, you said, oh, I'm not an actor, I'm a comic. Did you want to act at all? Or were you just really focused on doing comedy and writing when you moved? I way? was focused on being a comic, but I took
1: any acting job or audition that I could get. I mean, you know, I, to me, acting was a vehicle to become better known as a stand-up comic because, to me, the the goal was always to try to become a draw, quote-unquote, you know, so that I could make more money when I did clubs and I was no, a known commodity when they put my name on the marquee. It wasn't, like, oh, I wonder if that guy's good, to, wow, it's Jeff Jenner here at the Improv or wherever tonight, Right. And uh, that never quite materialized the way I wanted it to. (laughs) But, uh, you know, it's bad.
0: I've done all right, though. Now, so, you know, you're in L.A. And then, you know, you're still, are you going out on the road a lot at that point? Or are you going to a Vegas line? What were you doing, you know, as you were headlining and you were after these TV appearances? Where were you going? Well, I was was doing
1: a lot of Vegas. Sharipa loved me. Uh, and at one time Steve was booking uh, the Riv, the Maxim, uh, and also they had they tried comedy for a while at the Four Queens downtown. Uh, he was also booking like high roller parties and other stuff and Steve was always uh, really good to me and uh, really took care of me so uh, I was working in Vegas quite a bit between th- those places plus also I worked for Winston over at the MGM and you know, I I was you know did the trop a few times, and so I you know there was a lot of work in Vegas. Plus, I was working. There was a place up in uh, Reno called Just for Laughs at the Hilton that I was working, and I was doing the clubs around town. Uh, Hartman uh, gave me a lot of work doing you know Irvine and Brea and San Diego, uh, and then when they opened in San Jose up north, when they had the club on Market uh, Square. In San Francisco, I worked there quite a bit. So I was staying busy without traveling too far away, even though I would do, you know, my old clubs that I had a, a relationships with in the Midwest. I'd go fly out and, like, try, you know how it is. You try to set up two or three weeks in a row, and you you go, go and you land somewhere, and then you work the, you know, the clubs that you have bookings in and then kind of head back. You know, you go, I, I, I called it, you know, you have to go out uh, to the Midwest to support your apartment habit in
0: L.A. Right. So how, over the years, how has your act changed? And, and when you look at it and, and your writing style, and do you write the same way you always wrote? Or now that you have been on stage for all these years, you're a proven great comic. You probably know what works and what won't work. But how do you feel your act and the material has changed over the years?
1: Well, you know what? It, it, first of all, it's more personal now you know it's more about me and my family and and my own experiences where i don't know when i was younger i was trying to write you know um different kinds of things you know i was trying to be and and i think you know if you don't go through this stage you haven't really explored it but you know I, i was trying to be controversial so i wanted to do edgy stuff for a while you know and so um And now it's just, you know, I talk about things that I want to talk about now, you know, and like what's important to me now in my life, where I am, family, um, values, things like that, you know, and just, um, you know, and I don't feel the need to, like, challenge the way people look at their lives, you know. I guess I'm not burdened down by the heavy truth I carry within myself anymore. So, uh, but that has changed. What, and that's a great question. What is, I mean, because it has evolved. And, you know, here's the thing I've always told my wife too. It's like when I was like, say, doing this six or seven years and headlining for four or five of those years, I would like look at old videotapes and listen to old audio tapes that from three or four years before and just think, man, I was awful. why did anybody hire me I am so much better now and now I look back at you know five years past that eight years past that you look at those tapes and listen to those audios and you go oh that is so awful and I have always told my wife if I ever get to the point where I pick up a tape from three years before and listen to it and go wow was really good then. Like,
0: right.
1: <laughs> you know, then I'll know it's time to, uh, to, to, uh, call the accountant and start spending the money in the IRA. Right. So, but fortunately, that hasn't quite happened yet. And, you know, I'm encouraged by guys like Rickles too. I come back to Don where we were before. Here's a guy who was 90 and still working, still funny. Um, Maybe not as relevant as he was at one point, but still packing the rooms, doing his thing, you know. Oh yeah, people people um, said you
0: know when you would see him now, he'd be on a chair because he couldn't get around, but his mind was sharp as right. attack. Was sharp as attack.
1: And you know who else I had a great a chance to work with uh, was was Mar- Marty Allen. And uh Marty's in his mid-90s now. And he's I don't think he's working anymore now. But I worked with Marty when he was eighty-seven years old. And off stage, he was good, but a little, you know, he was an eighty-seven-year-old guy. But I'm telling you, man, walk out under the lights and he'd lit up. He lit up like a, a like a candle. And And he was good. I mean, he was still good, you know? And, uh, and in fact, I'll tell you a great Marty Allen story. I'm sitting with Marty. We, we, we worked on a cruise ship together and it was just about the time when, uh, the auto companies were being bailed out. Obama had just become president. So it was probably, you know, nine years ago and, uh, Obama had just become president and auto companies were getting bailed out. And, uh, and Marty and I have having lunch together. In the ghost and he goes, you know, I would like you to, uh, I, I, I want to do some materials about these auto bailouts. And, and I said, you know, Marty, I said, I write for a couple guys. I'd be happy to, like, write a couple jokes for you. Because as a kid, Alan and Rossi, you know, I knew their routines, you know. I knew the golfer routine, but, you know, by heart, you know. You know, do you have a caddy? No, I got a Pontiac. <laughs> How are the greens? Nice, but not as nice as the Berkowitzes. You know, I, 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 I knew the Alan and Rossi routines by heart. And um, so it was like, wow, I'm going to write some jokes for freaking Marty Allen. <laughs> this guy was on the Sullivan show with the Beatles, you know. And uh, so I go back to my cabin that night and I write a couple of jokes about the auto stuff. And the next day at lunch, I show him to Marty and he goes, hey, that's not bad. I'm going to try him in the show and then they go be my guest. Well, his wife, Karen, played the straight man for him. Um now, and so Marty and Karen are on stage, and they're doing their thing, and Marty does the jokes, bam, 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 one, two, three, and they work, they work great, and not because they were great jokes, but because out of Marty, you know, people weren't expecting Marty to do topical stuff, they were expecting to see the old Alan and Ross, but he does these bang, 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 three really topical jokes, they get a huge response, so the next day we're having lunch, and he goes, uh, jokes work great. I said, well, thanks, I, I, you know. And he goes, how much do I owe you? And I said, wow, you, you don't owe me anything. It's, you know, we're friends. I, I, I write some lines for you. You don't have to pay me. He goes, no, oh, no, no. You're a professional. I'm a professional. I want to pay you for your work. And I said, well, you know, Marty, usually if I writing for somebody else, I'll charge $100, 150 a line. He goes, $100 a line? I got Vegas guys right for $50 a line. I go, well, you asked me how much I wanted. I told you, it's 100 bucks a joke. I said, so here's the deal, Marty. You can have them for free, or else you owe me $300. So there's a couple other people, a couple other entertainers at the table with us. I get a big laugh with that, and uh, I let it go. So I go home, and about two weeks later, I get a little package in the mail, a thank you card from Marty. Has his wife Karen? Her she's a vocalist and a pianist and wonderful. Her CD, uh, a DVD that Marty had done, and a check for three hundred dollars, <laughs> which is still hanging on my office
0: wall. Oh man, that is so cool. So now, yeah. now you know you, you're working a lot. Now you said you a few years ago you decided to leave L.A. and you know what was was there a moment that made you sit there and go, I just got to get out of this place because you know. L A, it's just it's it's getting overcrowded. It was always crowded. It's changed since you've left. I mean, it's changed in the fifteen years I've been here. Was there any like defining moment yeah. that you just said, "Screw yeah. the shit"? I'm out here. Here's
1: the defining moment. I went to an audition for a for a dad, right? It's a dad. It's a it's a, a a dad, and and in the in the breakdown, it's described as 40-ish to 50-ish dad, right? For a part on a sitcom, and so I go. And at the time, I was, uh, if, if not 50, not I was pushing 50, if not already dragging it behind me. And um, I go in there, and I'm, you know, we, I tell people that when you're a comic and actor, you get good at lying. In fact, you get so good at lying, you start lying to yourself, and you believe it. <laughs> and so I'm, uh, I'm, you know, in the mirror, I'm going, you know, man, you look. You look 40. You know, you're going to get this, man. You're awesome. So I go to the audition, and I walk in. And everybody who's in there to play 30, 40 is probably 35, 33. And then there's me, Mr. 50. And all of a sudden, that's when it hit me. They're not really looking for me anymore. You know? They're really not looking for me anymore. And so... Uh, And there was also a confluence of events that happened. My son, who is 18 now and going to go to college next year, uh, was four years old or five and uh, getting ready to start school. And uh, we're looking around for a school to put our son in. And the cheapest private school we could find was a Lutheran school in Orange, California, which for first grade was $16,000. Holy crap. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, we the public schools where we lived, we lived in, in, in Santa Ana, Tustin area, weren't, you know, weren't an option, really, we didn't think, and so uh, we needed to find a place for our son to go to school, and then we found out that my mother was sick, and she wasn't going to get better, and, uh, you know, I've been so busy pursuing my career in that in the first five years of my son's life, he had spent probably a total of five weeks with his grandma and grandpa. Uh, either we'd go home at Christmas for a week or they'd come out and visit us for Christmas in a week. So my wife and I just decided it was time.
0: So you moved? And,
1: um, I'm, I'm not unhappy. I, I don't look back. I You know, we moved. and, and A month later, we moved, you know.
0: Now, what was so, it like? What was it like acclimating? Because you're used to LA. You're used to the go go go. You're used to, as you said, you know, with your with your father, four four cars is traffic. I mean, for us, four cars is a blessing. I mean, I can't even get get out of my yeah. get out of my neighborhood. I live in Burbank, and I can't even four, get out of Burbank. Four cars
1: th- was my four cars was my driveway in LA. Right.
0: <laughs> well, how was it acclimating um, when you first got back?
1: Uh, it was, you know, I mean, there's a culture shock. You, know, I'll tell you one thing. I remember very. <laughs> You know, my wife and I bought a house in Orange County, uh, oh, in maybe 1992 or 93. I don't remember exactly when we bought it. But we lived there for, you know, 12, 13 years, go to the same bank, the same grocery store, the same markets, and, you know, and I don't ever remember anybody calling me by name or recognizing me. You know, the first week I'm back here in this little town, I walk into the bank and just open an account. And the woman behind kind of looks at me and goes, you know, I would swear the way you look, you're one of Doris Janet's boys. (laughs) And I'm just like, wow, you know, (laughs) wow. And it's, you know, and it's and it's like that, you know, it's it's small town life. It's, you know. And, you know, I'm not saying there aren't downsides to that too, but it's, it's pretty good.
0: So now what do you, now with your career now, I know you do a lot of corporate stuff now or what, uh, what, what's your, Yeah, um, I don't,
1: I don't really do, I mean, I, I would do the occasional club date, very occasional. I don't really do nightclubs. I don't pursue them anymore. Occasionally I'll have somebody call me up and say, Hey, we're doing this or that, or we've got a, this special event. Would you be interested? I do a lot of corporate stuff. I do a lot of cruise work. I work for a couple of different cruise lines and that's pretty much what I do. I'm also at the age, like I'm 65, right? So I'm also at the age now where, you know, the people at the 55 plus community are younger than me. So <laughs> I've, I've started doing some, you know, like the villages in Florida and some, some city stuff and leisure world stuff. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a great living, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's supported me and my family for almost 40 years now. So I don't really have any complaints, but I find my work and occasionally, very occasionally, I'll get a call to do an audition. I'll drive to Detroit, to Chicago and audition for something, but not that much anymore.
0: How'd you get into the corporate world? And what's it like? Cause you probably have to really create an act that concentrates on them.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, well, let me just say that uh, I, you know, for my corporate stuff, I've I've created not a, a different act, but you know, it's sometimes you don't have to rewrite your act; you just have to present it a different way. And for me, it's it's just that I present, you know, my material with a, a little different point of view, you know. And it and it seemed to work well for me, but I mean, corporate, finding corporate work took a while to kind of get established. You know, I've been working in that field for you know fourteen, fifteen years now, and uh, you know, at first it was, you know, boy, you, you know, you get one corporate gig every two months, and you think, wow, this is really slow. I'm glad I have this other stuff going on, and now it's to the point where I get you know two or three a month, and it's a nice, it's nice, you know.
0: Now with the cruise ships. You've been doing the cruise ships for a while. Have you seen the audiences? Have they, have they been changing? And how do you see like the the in this time now? People get so offended. I mean, and when you play on a cruise, you have a you have a very diverse crowd. So you're getting people from everywhere. Well, you ages. know, I
1: don't want to. I am just and just when I say this, don't think I'm being weird. But uh, by contract, I am not allowed to to talk about a specific brand that I work on, but I can talk in generalities. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And on some cruise lines, there are dedicated comedy rooms where they announce this is an adult comedy show. If you're easily offended or underage, you need to leave now because our guest relations will not take any complaints about this show. So that's kind of how they set it up for you. So, I, I mean, when you're doing adult material, you know, and then uh, other times when you're on a ship, you have to do more PG family-oriented shows. And, and I mean, so you do your TV clean stuff. Um, but I, but, but in, in terms of the audience, you have to remember, like, when I was 35 to 45 doing improvs around the country and other comedy clubs... Those people have all gotten older with me. And so when I go on ships now, it's the same people who used to come to see me at the improv, or Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle, or The Punchline in Atlanta, or someplace like that. It's the same people. We're just meeting at a different place. You know, we're not meeting in a club, we're meeting on a cruise ship. And I, I've had, I, I I can't tell you how many hundreds of people come home and go. Oh, we saw you at the San Diego Improv years ago, or we saw you at Phoenix, or wh- wherever you know. So you know, it's that's where people of a certain age go for their entertainment. So it, it's 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 the same folks, you know.
0: Now, now through your career, who are some of the big the big names you've opened for? I know, I mean, in clubs.
1: Well, I've, you know, I worked with Jay a number of times and he was always very nice to me. I got to work with Jay, you know, I don't know, four or five times, Shanling. Uh, in fact, I remember once I worked with Shanling at the Comedy Castle in Detroit and we're standing there, it's Sunday night, the show's over, we're both standing at the bar. He autographs a napkin for me and says, yeah, you might want to hang on to this, I'm going to be big. <laughs> and I laughed and uh, we we've both been paid and we're his check for week. It's fifteen hundred dollars, and I remember saying, man, if I ever got to think what fifteen hundred dollars people stand up for that would be amazing. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I worked with Miller. I mean, you know, on one time I work with Patterson. Which was back in the club days. I was in clubs, and I, and I actually did an thing at the end that. A couple of years after I worked with them in a club, which was it was a fantastic time. Um, Robert Wall, Dennis Miller, uh, you know, Higner, Overton.
0: Um, You've worked with basically everybody.
1: Yeah, I mean, there was a time when I, and, and not anymore because I'm not connected to L.A., and I don't know a lot of the young men and women anymore. I, I really don't. In fact, one of the great compliments I had was I was back in L.A., gosh, this has got to be 10 years ago, and um, I got a set at Melrose, and I go up and I do, like, 15 minutes at Melrose, and the set goes really good, and I come on, and Pat Oswalt, who I, I did not know... And I've only met him this one time, to the best of my knowledge. Comes up to me after shit and goes, "Man, I've heard your name. You're really good." And I went, "Wow, that's really nice." That this guy who's a big star doesn't know me from frickin' Adam takes the time to come over and compliment me on my set. And that was a that was a real kindness and a real you know a real insight into who he is you know and in, in my opinion you know, about. Of course, if he would have come over and told me I sucked, probably would hate the guy. <laughs> well, man, you know what? But it, it was a real kindness that he did to me to come up and go out of his way to come up and say, hey, you really did a great job. Thanks a lot. And, you know, and it's funny, too, it's like uh, a lot of guys middled for me who went on to a lot bigger things than I got, too, like Mark Curry and uh, uh, Tom Rhodes and Ben and, Posh and, and, and guys like that who – uh were at one point worked in front of me and god bless them they've done fantastic
0: well you've had a fantastic career yourself and you're still doing it and as i say anyone who's been doing any job for 40 years and no less in the entertainment 40 years and when you break it down to doing comedy for 40 years and it's that's very impressive so you know it's uh it's good i'm glad i'm glad i got in touch with you you know i I was sitting there, and no. I, I said, you know, I, I I know your name. We're friends on Facebook, and, you know, every comic knows your name, or they should know your name, and I'm glad you got right. back to me, and I'm glad we got to do this.
1: Well, hey, you know what, Steve? This is awesome. I, I really enjoyed it, too. And uh, Now, you are moving out of L.A. I've been following you on Facebook. I <laughs> heard you talk about it at the at the uh, setup on the show. And, and where are you moving to?
0: I grew up outside Philadelphia in a town called Cherry Hill, New Jersey. My girlfriend owns- oh, no!
1: Well, my friend— my friend Don McMillan is from Cherry Hill, Oh
0: yeah, Don Don went to my high school. Don grew up in a neighborhood right behind me. He graduated with my older sister. Um, I were moving, she owns a condo back uh, right next to Cherry Hill, Marlton, New Jersey. And I just said, you know what, I can do my show anywhere. I'm getting a few other projects going. I just said, you know what, we're flying out April 29th. That's why they're great right now. She's been packing up stuff. It's uh, it's weird because, you know, I, I, I've been here for so long, this place. I found, like, headshot from 10 years ago when I had hair and I looked like a skinny <laughs> George Costanza. So, it's a, yeah, so I'm, I'm heading out. But well, uh,
1: What amazes me is that our paths haven't crossed before this in, in the real world instead of the virtual world.
0: Right. And you it's, know, yeah, that, and uh, it's, we know uh, so many we, of the same we people. We seem to know a lot
1: of the same people. You know, you said that Jeff Marker, who was who was a saint and a wonderful guy and a very funny man... Um, had recommended me to you and I, I, I'll i give a shout out to Jeff Martyr and say thank you to him for recommending me um, but I've enjoyed it man thank, thanks for having me on and let me let me feel like a an old guy who blabs about back
0: in the day yeah it's great man I, I'm getting yeah. that way now too man I'm, I'm becoming I was like what the heck you know I was like okay I gotta stop so now now you, your website is JeffreyJana.com <laughs> That's me, man. Jeffrejenna dot
1: com. If anybody wants to know anything, I mean, they can email. You know, I'm not a hidden person. I'm on Facebook at Jeffrejenna. My email is Jeff at Jenna. You know, uh, people can email me or friend me on Facebook. Usually, but I got to be honest. I, you know, I don't on Facebook. I don't uh, friend people. I don't accept people who I don't know in the real world. Right. You know what I'm saying? So. Don't send me on Facebook because I'm just, if I really don't know you personally, I'm probably not going to accept your request. But if you send me, you can send me a note. I mean, you can, my messaging is open. You can send a note and say you heard me on Cooper Talk and, you know, I'll correspond with you. I'm a lonely man.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, I want to thank you, people. So follow him, people. Follow me on Twitter, at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Instagram, Cooper Talk one because there must be another Cooper Talk. i got to look that up. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 600 episodes up there. You can email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. And don't forget my other website, stopthesalt.com. When I got out of the hospital a few years ago with my health problem, I wrote a low-sodium cookbook. It's 120 recipes. Very easy. No pictures to intimidate you. No long list of ingredients. If you, don't, if you don't have cumin, don't worry. You won't use cumin. So please get that, StopTheSalt.com. You can get it at Amazon.com. But if you get it at StopTheSalt.com, I make more money and I'll sign it for you. So anyway, people, I'm Steve Coop. Normally, as hip as my guest, don't forget drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.